I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1. Today's episode, The Liar. The boy walked into the living room and made the announcement. I don't want to breathe the same air as you anymore. The father didn't take his eyes off his newspaper. And what do you propose, he asked. Oxygen tanks? Should I send you to school pulling a wagon full of tanks? I wouldn't need to worry at school, the boy said evenly. Just at home. What are you, too good to share air with me? The man asked, trying to control his temper. It's not that, the boy said. It's just something I've decided. You can't just say things like that, the man said. He threw the paper down and grabbed the child by the shoulders. Does your old man smell? Can't stand the stink of your old man? The man realized he was shouting. He withdrew his hands. The trouble had begun two weeks earlier when he told the boy he wouldn't be able to take him to the comic convention, as he'd promised. The truth was he'd somehow blown the whole work week on boozy lunches and flirtatious banter with the new intern, and now he needed the weekend to catch up. But the boy, an intense kid with few friends, loved comics and had been looking forward to the convention for months. You lied to me the boy had said. It isn't a lie, the man had replied. Sometimes things change. When I get older, the boy had told him, I'll never lie, no matter what. Wait until you're my age, the man had said, getting on his knees in front of the boy. It gets hard. Does it ever, the man thought to himself. A lie here and a lie there was hardly the problem. You woke up one morning and realized your whole damn life was a lie, and you had no choice but to roll with it. And now the kid wouldn't let up, constantly on his case, about everything. Do you really think I'm as good a drawer as Picasso? Or was that a lie too? Or what about how you were the best running back your high school had ever seen? Really? The best? I'll show you the newspaper clippings, the man had said, trying to control his voice. Keep it light, he reminded himself. Come here, you little creep, he said, scruffing the boy's hair. He'd seen fathers pull the move on television, but could never get it quite right. It hurts my head when you do that, the boy said. 
That night, unable to sleep, the man headed to the kitchen for a nightcap. Along the way, he passed his son's bedroom, where the boy sat in his little kid rocking chair with his hands clamped on the armrests. He wasn't reading comics or playing. He wasn't even rocking. Having a hard time sleeping, eh? The father asked. Me too. I'm not sleeping tonight, the boy responded. I just don't want to dream. What's wrong with a little dreamy time? I might dream of you, the boy said. You don't mean that, the man said. I mean what I say, the boy said. I don't lie. He stared his father in the eye, and the father stared at him. The boy held his ground, confident that he was onto something, though not quite sure what. Maybe that if he stared hard enough, he'd eventually see right through his father, straight through to the truth, God's truth. What the boy did not know yet, but the father did, was that God didn't care about the truth at all. God had given man the gift of lies so that he did not have to hurt those he loved. Lies were an act of mercy. But this was nothing the man could put into words. All he had to express himself were his hands, which were now holding the boy's shoulders, shaking them, trying desperately to break the terrible eye contact. During his first meeting with me, Philip, pathological liar, listed some of the lies he'd recently told. At a school fundraiser, he'd told his daughter's music teacher that he was the son of a famous composer. And just before that, he told his father-in-law, a sports journalist, that he'd once been selected as a reserve for the UK men's archery team. The first lie he could remember telling was to a classmate. When Philip was 11 or 12, he'd insisted that he'd been recruited by MI5 to train as an agent. He described his headmaster's admonishment, for goodness sake, if you're going to lie, at least do a better job of it. The headmaster was right. Philip was a dreadful liar. While each lie seemed tailored to wow the listener, they were also pointlessly excessive, wildly risky. You don't seem to worry about people thinking you're a liar, I told him. He shrugged. As far as I could tell, Philip didn't empathize with the people to whom he had lied. For the most part, he just didn't seem to care. That is, until the week before he came to see me for psychotherapy. His seven-year-old daughter had asked for his help with her French homework. He'd always told her that he was fluent, and now, instead of admitting that he didn't speak French, he told her that he just couldn't remember the names of the farm animals in her exercise book. She became silent and looked away. He saw her realize that he had lied to her. Throughout the consultation, I was struck by Philip's frankness, but I knew that if he was to be himself with me, if he was to bring all of himself into our work, he would, at some point, lie to me. It happened soon enough. A month into treatment, he stopped paying his bill. He told me that he'd misplaced his checkbook, that he would settle his account as soon as he found it. 
and the next month he told me that he had donated his month's salary to the Freud Museum. After five months of tall tales, I had to inform him that we would stop at the end of that month unless he settled his debt. Just as he was about to leave what would have been our final session, he took a check from his pocket and handed it to me. I was relieved to be paid, but uncertain about what had happened between us. Philip had told increasingly blatant lies, and I'd become increasingly withdrawn, more guarded when I spoke. He was, I now realized, expert in tying his listener up in the social convention that we meet lies with polite silence. But why? What possible psychological purpose could his behavior serve? We wrestled with this question for the next year of his treatment. We talked about his parents. His father was a surgeon and his mother had been a school teacher until her death, just before Philip's 12th birthday. And then, one day, Philip described a memory from childhood which had seemed too trivial to mention until then. From the age of three, he used to share a bedroom with his twin brothers, who slept in cots nearby. He sometimes woke in the middle of the night to the sound of people shouting as they left the pub across the road. He was often aware of a need to pee and knew that he should get up and walk down the hall, but he would stay in bed, motionless. I used to wet my bed as a child, Philip told me, and he described crumpling up his damp pajamas and pushing them deep into the covers, only to find them at bedtime under his pillow washed and neatly folded. He never discussed it with his mother, and to the best of his knowledge, she never told anyone, including his father, about his bedwetting. He'd have been furious with me, Philip said. I guess she thought I'd outgrow it. And I did, when she died. His bedwetting and her silence gradually developed into a private conversation, something only they shared. When his mother died, this conversation abruptly came to an end. And so, Philip began to improvise another version of their exchange. He told lies that would make a mess, and then hoped that his listener would say nothing, becoming, like his mother, a partner in a secret world. Philip's lying was not an attack upon intimacy, though it sometimes had that effect. It was his way of keeping the closeness he had known, his way of holding on to his mother. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. When I was a kid, around third grade, I moved schools. So I was the new kid at school, 
and you know there's all the kind of social anxiety that comes along with that uh, which was enhanced by the fact that the school was there was like a new kind of socioeconomic level there that I wasn't quite accustomed to and everybody had like kind of you know fancy lunch boxes and fruit roll-ups and um, candy bars and stuff and I had just like a paper bag with you know an apple and a peanut butter jelly sandwich and we get a box of raisins in our lunch like my dad tried to just basically have us not have sweets and I remember him very specifically trying to, trying to convince me how cool the box of raisins was because after you eat the raisins you can turn the box into a whistle I was like that's not going to help me and in third grade, telling everybody about my awesome raisin box whistle. So I didn't have cool snacks, but everybody else did. And then what would happen also is they would, people would trade them. You know, there would be this brisk kind of economy in the cafeteria of like people saying like, oh my God, I'm so bored with my awesome chunky. Like, uh, how about I trade you for your Fritos? Mm. And this was a rather kind of well-functioning economy because, you know, everybody sort of got what they wanted. But I couldn't because I my, you know, raisin box. The other thing that my dad would put in my lunch was a can of sardines. This is like a real can of sardines. Was that was that as a dessert or was that like as a kind of? Um... I think that was the entree. Uh huh. Okay. But um, the can of sardines was had zero currency in the in the <laughs> snack trading room, and so uh, I couldn't get what I wanted. So then what happened was at a certain point I started telling everybody that my mom was this incredible baker and she could bake a cake like nobody's ever seen and she bakes a cake at the end of the year for everybody in my class and like you can't believe it this cake that's coming and what I can do is I can let you in on a special opportunity which is if you give me some snacks like say those Cheetos now I can just put you down for a share of this cake later so you'll get you know, it's like a deposit on this wonderful cake. And so you, so you were selling cake futures. It was like a Ponzi scheme <laughs> made out of cake, like an imaginary cake. And the idea, for whatever reason, totally caught on. People loved this idea. And so all of a sudden, I could get whatever I wanted. I could like hostess, you know, I could get ding-dongs, nutty ho-hos, flaky flicks. I was setting the terms, you know, be like, oh, okay, these watermelon Jolly Rancher, I don't even want that. Like that isn't even worth any of my cake. And I had like actually had a ledger and I would I would record the transactions. You know, people would come and say, Oh, I'm gonna get what do I get for these Doritos? And then I'd be like, Oh, you get like, you know, half of a layer of this cake. And then I got a little bit fan too fancy by allowing people if they had really good snacks to customize. So then all of a sudden it'd be like, Oh, this layer is red velvet and this one's angel food and you know, I mean, then it became oh, so it was insane. All, it was like all different cakes to different people. Right. And who who was I to, like, dash that dream once I had created it? You know, it was a beautiful vision that we all shared. And then as the story grew and the cake grew, I realized, oh, my God, I'm, I'm in too deep. It was like people had already, people were already into me for, like, 14 bags of Doritos. Like imaginary, like if you would look in the ledger, you would see that it is describing like a 300-foot-tall cake that is impossible, right? There's no, it would never exist, this cake. So, you know, I was nervous about it, right? Because, you know, the, eventually the, this day of reckoning was going to come. And the whole thing sort of came undone because there was this guy, Spencer, at my school who, he was like another kind of smart math kid. 
And then he was the first one that sort of started pointing out to people, like, oh, man, this cake would defy the laws of gravity or whatever. He looks at the numbers and realizes this cake is a, is a sham. And he starts trying to tell people, but at first nobody wants to believe it, right? Because people have to believe, they have to keep believing in the cake. Because they're doubling and, down. Yeah, they're doubling down, you know. They're like, nobody wants to. You, the minute you stop believing in the cake, you realize all that you've lost. You know, your chunkies are long gone. They're never coming back. And um, so he kind of starts spreading the word, and he's like, hey, I know this cake isn't real. And I start, I start panicking, right, because I don't want to let go of this vision, because if they find out what I've done, I'll, they'll turn on me. And so I double down, right? And then I say, no, I can, I can prove it to you. I'm going to bring a sample of this cake. I'm going to go home. My mom's going to provide an early a preview of the it, cake it would, to come. It would be kind of like, um, like a model home of like the real <laughs> estate that you were eventually yeah. going to be selling. Yeah, exactly. I would put it out on one of the tables in the cafeteria and we could have a viewing. <laughs> I, and then I would forestall doom for, you know, for a little while longer. So I went home, and my mom's not there, my dad's not there, but I figured, like, well, how hard can it be? You know, I don't have to, it's not the whole cake, I'm like, just a piece of cake. I see my mother do it all the time. And so I'll just, like, make this cake before she gets home, and I'll, like, hide the cake in my closet, and then I'll sneak it to school. But I don't know if you've ever made a cake, but, like, it's baking, it's chemistry. Like, stuff happens to happen right, and I didn't know how to do it, and I was eight, and I got, I went overboard. I'm like, oh, I'm going to put some some like Nestle quick powder in here that'll make it chocolatey and like, oh, what about some strawberries? And it was horrible and it was a mess and was like burning in the oven. Like parts of it had like bubbled over. But, you know, like a a cake material, a thing materialized out of that oven. Did, and, did, did, it, um, did it look like cake? No, no, it did not at all look like a cake. It, you know what it looked like? It looked like a brisket. <laughs> <laughs> So then I managed to clean up the kitchen, and then I, like, put this thing in a shoebox. And so then the next morning, I walked to school carrying this box, and everybody's kind of gathered around. It's like a moment of, you know, it's a little bit of a, it's a real moment of truth. And um, Spencer tries the cake, and there's kind of a quiet there as everybody nervously awaits the result of this cake tasting. And then Spencer spits it out, acknowledges what is, you know, plain for all to see that it is a disgusting, you know, brisket cake. But the interesting thing was that it wasn't that they didn't believe that my mother was going to bake the cake. They did. They just thought that <laughs> what they what the revelation was that, oh, my God, your mother is a terrible baker and is going to bring us this horrible giant cake and it's going to be disgusting and we don't want this cake. And then I had this choice where I could sort of come clean and admit that I had made this horrible thing and there never was a cake. Or I could allow my mother to be a terrible baker and let that be the story, uh, which of course is what I did. I mean, no eight-year-old is gonna just come clean for no reason, right? But that kind of sacrifices what mothers are for. You know, they're meant to take the fall for you and protect you. And in fact, in the end, this only sort of advanced my cause as the year went on, because then everybody sort of felt bad for me. I was like, oh, God, this, you know, no wonder he's always trying to get our Chunkies and Cheetos because he's just, his mother can't bake a cake to save her life. And uh, I became a charity case, and they would just offer me, you know, their extra cookie or whatever. 
So, you know, by throwing my mother under the bus, I wound up getting, you know, all the snacks that I wanted. I'm in your house right now, and I can't find your angel food cake pan. Everything is just so disorganized. What, what, why are you making a cake in, in my house? I'm celebrating. Is that, is that a crime? What are you celebrating? This doesn't have to be a reason. It's just a, such a gray, rainy day outside. Nothing to do but eat cake, that's what I say. Nothing to do but eat cake in my house. Oh, hang on. There's, there's the bell. Hey. Howard? Who? Uh, uh, just, you want a sandwich or something like that? Who is that? Uh, it's, it's the plumber. That, that's my plumber. Uh, that's my friend, Barry. He's a plumber. He, he knows how to plumb. Why is there a plumber in my house? Because your, your passport got stuck in the toilet, and I Ag- thought maybe I should call. Again, Howard! You shouldn't keep it so close to the bathroom. I, I keep, I mean, Howard, to- I keep my passport I- in a locked drawer. Things get misplaced? You're not very organized. I, I can't even find a proper Angel's food cake pan here. Just, Howard, why do you always flush my passport down the toilet? They're going to stop giving me replacement ones. You make it like it's my fault that you have a passport stuck in your toilet. I came into this house. I was minding my own business. I wanted to make a cake. Oh, my God. Barry, get a bucket. No. 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 Yeah. What was that? What? Oh, the radio was on. I was just listening to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Thought maybe I'd, I'd catch a show. And show you know what, show. Howard? Come down to the studio. You want me to come to the studio? Yes, I would. You're inviting me? In fact, there's actually a lot of leftover birthday cake from this party that happened earlier today. And, and you know, so you can, you can come down here and eat it with Bruce. Well, I, I actually did have a few things planned, but... Uh... But if I'm needed in this way, I guess I can move uh, some things around my planner. H- how much cake are we talking about here? Uh, a lot, Howard. I-, I, can't, I can't be expecting the entire cake. Of course not. Hmm. Where, where do you keep your Tupperware? You're so disorganized. Here, Brucey, this one. Let's get some cake. No, no, not. Come in this way. Hey, Howard. Hey, man. I brought along cake bibs and party mm. hats for Brucey and me. And I... What? Well, what is that machine? It's called a polygraph machine. Do you know what that is? Of course I know a polygraph machine. Oh, is. do you? Yes. What is it? It's the fine art of polygraphy. I know it. A polygraph is commonly known as a lie detector. I borrowed it from the set of that new CBC television show. So you think you can lie. So you think you can lie. They, uh-huh. never, they never get away with it. Okay, well, I brought it into the studio because I wanted you to see how much you've come to rely on lying. Howard P. Colchin Chakowitz is not, nor has he ever, ever been a liar. My mama raised me. Okay, fine, Howard. Sit down. Get comfortable. I'm just gonna. If you insist, I'm gonna. I think this is completely childish. Please stop squirming. I'm just gonna strap you in. Oh, 
can't move my arms. Why are my why do my arms have to be strapped down to the? We're gonna monitor your heart your heart rate, your blood flow. We're gonna do a pretest just so we can get a baseline. Okay, I'm just gonna ask you some simple questions. What is your name? Howard P. Coltrane Chakowitz. Howard Chakowitz. And how old are you? 37. 39. 41. 44. God. You can't even tell the truth during a pretest. I'm just sensitive about my age. I'm nervous. I like lying. All right, here we go. How did my passport get stuck in the toilet? It was in there when I got to your place. I was on the commode, reading a New Yorker. People. Teen beat. Oh, for... I threw your passport in the toilet. Why? That's all I want to know, Howard. Okay, fine. All right. It's, it's, it's because you're always going away. You know, I miss you. Yeah. All right. All right, fine. I cut out your face and I replaced it with Brucey's because I thought it'd be cute for my dog to have a passport. But, but then, but then you called while I was working on it, and then I guess when when I heard your voice, I felt so much shame. I got scared you'd be angry. I just felt bad. I got bored of working on it, so I flushed it down the toilet. Are you happy? I just want you to be proud of me for once. Oh, you know what? I really don't like this. Why did it just buzz? You, you do like this? Hmm. A little. I, you know, I just like getting a little attention and, and, you know, spending some time with you and... Hey, look at that. Just no, no buzz. Hmm. Well, I guess I was actually telling the truth that time. You see? You see that telling the truth isn't so hard, right? Yeah, I guess not. I... <laughs> well, well, thanks, John. I guess that's... Well, you know, that, that was, that's all I really wanted. I, I don't always act like it, but I, but I do appreciate you caring about me and you have my back. And... Well, okay. Well, thanks, Hal. And I, I know it seems like I'm about to get you sometimes, but I, you know I care about you too. Hey, the and... cord on this. Your dog is chewed right through the polygraph's electrical cord. That's why it isn't buzzing. Look who's trying to get his daddy out of a jam, eh? What a good boy. What a good boy. You don't care about me at all. Those are all lies. When do we get the cake for me and Brucey? There's no cake, Howard. Do we go get some at the, at the cafeteria? You owe me cake anyway, and you're such a stupid idiot. Okay, that's it. Howard, I'm done. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. Come back. Bye. Un unstrap me. Brucey, bite through the, bite through the straps. Brucey, come back. No, don't go the, no, don't go the door. On Wiretap today, you heard Howard Chakowitz, Joshua Behrman, and Stephen Gross, author of The Examined Life. Wiretap is produced by Mira Birdwintonic, Crystal Duhame, and me, Jonathan Goldstein. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.